Hello, my friends. Jeff Salzman here, and welcome back to the Daily Evolver Live. It's Tuesday, March 31st, and this is the first episode of our spring 2015 season. And I'm really happy to be back and to have you back with me. It's a beautiful evening here in Boulder. Uh, just, um, we had a long, cold winter, or long, cold early spring, and uh, it kind of held the flowers back, but they have burst forth in the last couple weeks. And um, <laughs> as a friend of mine said about my garden, she said, your garden is lousy with tulips. And it's true. <laughs> I planted a bunch of tulips last fall. And I just love them. They're, they're such beautiful flowers, especially when they're brought in from the garden where, you know, they can slowly open and bloom. And really, you know, this is this first burst of life in, in after a, a winter in Boulder. And I have these little Ikebana frogs, which are these little contraptions of like upside down nails that you can place the flowers in. It's a whole, of course, Japanese contemplative art form. And I'm no expert, but I just try to give each tulip its place so that it can have its own eye space and then be placed with other tulips that so that we create a we space of tulips. And it changes all the time. It's a beautiful moving art form and you can adjust it. And, you know, what I realize is I really love doing it and I have been loving it for the last several years, but this year I had a new realization, and that is that the tulips love it too. I really think they love being in my Ikebana arrangements, and I think they may, they may even love me. And, <laughs> and you know, maybe I'm losing, I mean, I don't expect you to believe this. This is one of the great things about postmodern spirituality in general is that you don't have to believe things. You can experiment. You can try and see what happens to you if you sort of suspend this belief for a minute and think that these are creatures. These are living creatures, and they have a consciousness too. And this is actually, you know, part of integral practice. Every living thing, cells, plants, animals, humans, and maybe beyond, has a consciousness or a sphere of awareness that is appropriate to its level of development. And it includes volition and even longing. And this is a view that leads to the realization that flowers can be ennobled by our adoration. It actually makes them more happy, more fulfilled, more alive. I always think of this wonderful line from Rumi where he said, it's just six words, he says, grapes want to turn into wine. And I love how that just, again, enchants the world to see just this web of life where adoration is sort of built in. And it turns out to be quite relevant to the topic I want to look at tonight. And that is, you know, this nature of just this, this built-in adoration for uh, beings who are flying at a higher altitude than we are. And we can actually see this in any line of development in terms of human beings. I mean, we have a sort of a almost worshipful attitude to great artists, to great athletes, um, and certainly to great spiritual geniuses like Buddha, like Jesus, like many, who just rivet humanity. There's something, we, we may get it all wrong and we may interpret it at our more contracted level of development, but we know that there's something that is um, real and alive and that that's where life is, that's where life is flowing. And we, you know, can't get enough. And it actually turns out to be one of the topics that's up in the integral world. And that is, how do we, or do we even, relate spiritually to God, to a ultimate consciousness, 
the ultimate creator consciousness before the Big Bang consciousness, loving intelligence who sees us and loves us individually. I mean, this is, of course, an intuition of humanity throughout history, and it's wrung out of the system in modernity, which is modernity's job. But at post-modernity and beyond, we, I'd say we have a, a, a sort of a hole that needs to be filled with God. Um, and again, post-mythic, post this is not about, you know, believing as certainly one my God versus another God, but just the loving intelligence, personal loving intelligence that is built into the strata of the cosmos. Another reason I'd say this is up in the integral community is we just had a conference on it um, here in Boulder last weekend. Integral Life put it on. They're a beautiful conference, very, very loving, actually, <laughs> which is appropriate to Christianity, which is um, the religion that really emphasizes love. And it's called Return to the Heart of Christ Consciousness. Um, and was held by, um, put together by David Reardon and um, Corey DeVos and some of the other sisters and brothers over at Integral Life. And they did a wonderful job. And um, so I wanted to report on that. Also, uh, I'll be joined in a bit by Steve McIntosh, who is one of our leading integral philosophers, who has really done a lot of thinking on this idea of God and how we are to relate to him, her, it in an integral uh, stage of development. But before we get to that, I wanted to point out that for those of you who are interested in learning more about integral theory, there are a couple charts that are useful, and you can find them on my website, dailyevolver.com, under the Theory tab. And there's a whole theory section there, but particularly at the top are a couple charts. Uh, and the main one being the levels of development, which map out the evolution of consciousness, uh, of the interiors of life uh, through history, and also in individual human beings. So it's a really key to integral theory. And I also want to say that I really love hearing from you. And I get lots of emails and voicemails, and, and you can email me at jeff at dailyevolver.com. And you can go to the website, dailyevolver.com, and there's an orange button that you can press and leave a voicemail. It's really cool. And I can actually leave one back. And I often play them on the show. And tonight I wanted to share an email I got today from a listener out of Ohio, Christian. I think he really sums up this principle of evolution. Uh, that says that no matter how hard people who are at the trailing edge of an evolutionary movement try to stop it, try to fight the new thing, it's just impossible to resist the power of an idea whose time has come. And Christian wrote about the situation in Indiana here, the state of Indiana, where there's a big to-do about um, the legislature and governor signing legislation that called the Re Religious Freedom Act that allows people to not serve gay weddings, for instance, caterers and bakers and so forth. That's basically the idea. And there's just been this huge backlash, and they've had to retract the law and amend it and all this stuff. And, and Christian writes, the religious freedom bill and backlash in Indiana is interesting to me. It's not the bill itself. It seems to me that it's an unremarkable example of amber in a state with a large amber population. And amber means conservative. And it's not the backlash itself. Every anti-LGBT law has backlash from Greens and progressives. It's the composition of the backlash. The Republican mayor of Indianapolis, the Indianapolis Chamber of Commerce, the NCAA, which is the College Athletic Association for Basketball, which is a big deal here, all of whom I'd associate with a more conservative mindset. Yet it's the awesomeness of the whole messy process that the bill looks immediately like a terrible setback, but that the reaction seems to be pointing the way towards new progress. And he goes on uh, to point out a group in his state called the Young Conservatives for Freedom to Marry. 
And let me repeat that. I think it bears repeating. The young conservatives for freedom to marry, which is kicking off a trek through his home state of Ohio, pushing to add marriage equality, gay marriage, to the 2016 Republican platform. And what he's pointing out is basically the engine of evolution itself. We have two poles of thinking, conservatives and liberals, and the evolutionary force is that each of these poles begin to take on the best qualities of the other and move forward so that you have conservatives taking on liberal positions, pro-gay positions. And basically, it's what we would call the modern stage of conservatism, the business people who they don't want a backlash. It's, this is where greed and money trump ideology in a good way, <laughs> which is why we say evolution is beautiful, but not always pretty. Okay, so let's get back to our main story here, which is how can integralists relate to God or spirit in second person, as we say in integral? And I think it's one of the most brilliant and spiritually precious insights of Ken Wilber, that he shows that spirit, like all of reality, arises in a first-person dimension, a second-person dimension, and a third-person dimension. And first-person, just a little repeat grammar lesson, first-person is me. And first-person spirituality is about the expansion of my identity, basically, so that it expands ultimately to include everything, the whole cosmos, and is basically dissolved beyond that into an open, liberated space of, you know, complete and perfect awareness and identity, uh, which also looks like lack of identity. <laughs> it's very paradoxical. And then there's third person spirituality, and third person is the world of its. The, so the manifest reality, nature, um, the, the stars, um, animals, um, each other in a certain way. And this is the world of nature mysticism, shamanism, um, even psychedelics, uh, various kinds of uh, spirit vision quests and that sort of thing. So that's first person and third person, which leaves a gap in, in second person. And second person is spirit arising in terms of you or we or a we space, a relationship of two personal identities that can see each other personally. And this is more difficult territory because, first of all, we would sure like to have a better word than God for this because, you know, God has so much mythic baggage that it's almost impossible to not see him as a man in the sky or some version of that. And when actually what we're talking about is the creator God of the cosmos, which is, uh, you know, mother, father, both, loving, intelligent, uh, and can be seen as a parent, you know. You can sit in her lap. And, of course, the male version of this is the heritage of the Abrahamic traditions, uh, and this is Christianity, Judaism, and, and Islam. And so, you know, part of what was going on at the St. Julian Hotel here in Boulder for the last four days was people getting together and, you know, sorting this out and, you know, trying to relate to it. One of the hugely important aspects of integral theory is that first person and second person and third person dimensions of reality can't be reduced one to the other. And to have a more complete or more inclusive spirituality, we're invited to practice in all three realms. So, you know, a lot of us have actually done this without necessarily even, you know, meaning to or noticing it or, or doing it as some sort of a project. But we look at a lot of people's experience in the integral world, and, you know, this is certainly true of many of the people at this conference, including me, 
And many people were started out with a sort of a fundamentalist, traditionalist religion of Christianity. That's the majority religion in this country and in the West. And this is, of course, the the realm or the world of today, social and religious conservatives, uh, conservative Republicans, Southerners, that sort of thing. And later stages of spiritual development tend to see these people who believe in, you know, the Bible literally. They see them as being backwards and, and stupid even. And I noticed that myself. I was watching Bill Maher the other night and Mike Huckabee's on the show. And Mike Huckabee is a conservative governor, ex-governor of Arkansas, who is a, also an ex-pastor. And he's a, actually a really, really warm and wonderful avuncular guy, but very fiercely fundamentalist. And it really represents that whole sort of vibe of conservatism in a really deeply believing way. And he was talking with Bill Maher about guns and the joy of duck hunting. And Bill Maher, who of course is a big animal activist, interjected, why do you want to kill the poor little ducks? And without a minute's hesitation, Mike Huckabee responded with great glee, because they taste good. You kill things because they taste good. And my immediate response was, oh, you fucking asshole. I just so hate that thinking of taking joy in the killing of this animal. And so, you know, of course, as a good integralist now, at least wannabe practitioner, I note that, if I remember to, I note that hating something is an invitation for me to turn towards it and open my mind, open my heart, ask myself, what's right about this perspective? What piece of the truth does this perspective bring to a more wise, integrated understanding of reality as it is? And what part does it see that I don't? And that's all really interesting when you really stop. And I think one of the things that really invites us to do this is we just get bored with hating other perspectives. You know, I've done it for a long time. Basically, just seeing other people as defective versions of myself, I've learned all I can from that. <laughs> so, you know, it's on to uh, embracing and, and, and uh, you know, letting it in. And so, you know, when I do that, I see that, okay, Mike Huckabee and his people, the traditionalists, the Amber Altitude people, live in a world where ducks are God's precious gift to us. So we can feed ourselves and be good, strong citizens of God's kingdom on earth. And they're delicious because God made them delicious for us. And God's kingdom is a good, true, and beautiful place, except, and of course this is a big except, human beings disobeyed God's instructions and brought sin into the world and so now we're in a big war with the devil and the forces of evil. And, of course, this is where Mike Huckabee loses me. And everybody else who has moved beyond traditionalism or a mythic understanding of reality into the next stage, which is modernity. From an integral perspective, we see that not only is there nothing wrong with traditionalism, uh, but the traditionalism serves the purpose of organizing and civilizing the structure that came or the stage that came before that, which is basically red, brutal, might is right culture. So traditionalism represents a huge developmental progress for both the cultures and individuals. So anyway, then we end up at modernity, and this is where we basically lose our religion. Uh, it just doesn't make sense anymore. I, I know that lightning isn't God's punishment, or it's just electric going from positive to negative. And, you know, we turn from the book to understanding reality as it is. And, you know, of course, science is way more fruitful in terms of material world, and we create the modern world and, you know, all of what modernity has brought forth. 
But from an interior perspective, there's a special kind of spiritual suffering that comes online at modernity because we're not just kicked out of the garden. You know, we're hanging on to a rock that's hurtling through space and some meaningless journey. And at modernity, spirituality is not just not respected. It's seen to not even exist. And I'm talking about, you know, real philosophical materialism, which is, you know, the scientific view. Um, and, you know, even consciousness is a self-delusion of the brain that has some evolutionary benefit because it allows us to interact with other brains who are under a similar delusion. So we can get together in our delusions and do things. And, you know, everything, all of that, all of volition, all of awareness, all of enthusiasm is reduced to, uh, you know, first-person consciousness, second-person love is reduced to third-person meat. And we're a collection of molecules and cells and neural networks that are doing their meaningless work. And, you know, you can feel it. I mean, even in real time, as I talk about it, I can feel it right now. There's an enchantment that just it washes away and a little light goes out. And it's like, fuck, really? You know, and it's hard to believe that the, the sort of materialism represents progress in the spiritual line. But it does because it rings the superstition and magic and myth out of the system so that we can basically move forward, uh, you know, cleansed of the sort of downside of those, all of the, you know, violence and, you know, the ethnocentricity that comes with that stage of, of development. So, you know, we move to a postmodern spirituality, many of us. Uh, certainly, probably most of the people listening to this would have moved into a postmodern spirituality where, you know, it's exemplified by the Beatles' trip to India. That's sort of the sort of, uh, event that ushers it in to the uh, mass consciousness. And it's the bringing in of meditation and yoga, uh, you know, Trumpa here at Boulder, Suzuki Roshi, Maharishi, Rajneesh, the New Age, the 60s. And what's cool about that is that the Buddhism, for instance, that is brought to America is shorn of all its indigenous traditional cultural aspects. And, you know, it's basically brought here by the most advanced people and practitioners, the most adventuresome ones, the one who are really looking to innovate, and they replant themselves in the West, Tibet uh, being, you know, that moved into a diaspora where they had to, but many chose to come over to the West, and, you know, they, they basically teach a high-end, pristine, graduate school level of Buddhism, of non-dual technology, if you will, uh, while poor Christianity is still stuck in the Sunday school stage, which is not to say that Christianity doesn't have an equally beautiful mystical tradition, but it's just, you know, traditionalists don't know anything about it, nor do modernists. You know, it's, it's just sort of lost, waiting to be rediscovered. And of course, it is being rediscovered. And that's one of the projects of this last weekend and projects that a lot of people are doing. But just to sort of uh, talk a little bit about what the non-dual traditions or what Buddhism, because Buddhism was my practice for, has been for 30 plus years. And basically, it relates to ultimate reality as being empty of intrinsic content. And let me just unpack that a little bit. Uh, in meditation practice, you start by seeing one of your first realizations is that what you previously saw as being concrete and unchanging actually turns into being uh, an ever-changing fluidity. It's like what you thought was a noun becomes a verb. And there's this uh, realization. And as you continue to practice, you see that even this fluidity reveals itself to be more energy and less mass. It's just more open and spacious and aerated. I, I always love Walt Whitman. He says, I inhaled great drafts of space. And as you further work and contemplate this, you realize that even this aerated effervescence 
is empty of any actual content. And I always remember I did a master's degree at Naropa University on Indo-Tibetan Buddhism. And, and one of my favorite courses was Madhyamaka, where we did this practice of just basically splitting everything, <laughs> continued to splitting it into two until you find that there's actually, as they say, there's nothing findable. And that's, you know, profound. And that realization delivers you into a realization of absolute reality that blasts away all of your identity, your conditioned mind, and you are now identifying with this open, empty space where there's nothing findable. And then you can, with further practice, see that this open space is actually lit up with Buddha nature, what they call it, or a sort of an intelligence, a compassion. And then you come back to, re, you know, back, come back to do what you did before. You chop wood and carry water. You look the same. You do the same stuff. But you do it now lit up with this wisdom and compassion, this equanimity, this absolute liberation from conditions and conditioned mind. And you're enlightened. And again, from an integral perspective, we'd say that that is a first-person realization. Your personal identity is expanded and essentially obliterated, uh, at which point then you can put yourself back on and wear yourself like a beautiful coat. I always love that expression. So anyway, postmodern spirituality, we also go into nature and drum and you know, again, we have shamans and psychedelics and deep ecology. And the postmodern spirituality is also friendly to the third person, uh, you know, nature worship. But so we got first person, we got third person, but not so much second. There's still a lot of allergies to this idea of God, uh, to a divinity, uh, to a personal, you know, anything like that. So this is where integral comes in. Because at Integral, of course, we keep the realizations about first-person non-dual. We, whatever we got from third-person nature, we continue to work on those. But we reintegrate second-person in a post-traditional way, as I said, a post-modern way, post-post-modern way. And at this point, I want to look at this with the help of my guest, Steve McIntosh. And again, Steve is done... Some of the best thinking on this of anybody's really, really helped me. And Steve, are you there? Yes, I can, uh, I can hear you fine, Jeff. Can you hear me? Yeah, hear you fine. Great. Imagine. Communicating. Such a thing. Thanks for having me on the show. Yeah, it's my, um, my great pleasure. And I guess, Steve, uh, as I said, you wrote a book. It's not yet published, but uh, it's very, very powerful to me. Uh, called The Presence of the Infinite, where you make an argument for theism, basically, as a post-postmodern move. And you differentiate uh, postmodern spirituality with what you call evolutionary spirituality, which is the post-postmodern move. And I guess I'd start there by just asking you to give us, uh, you know, a quick and dirty explanation of what that is. Sure. Well, as I argue in the book, I'm not making an argument for theism as a replacement for you know the important achievements of progressive spirituality in its um, bringing forward and refining and developing the non-dual side of spirituality. Um, I argue that both of these, uh, uh, what I call a kind of panentheistic, which is a theological term meaning that there that spirit is both imminent and transcendent. That, that the panentheistic insights of a transcendent element of spirit, you know, kind of infinite spirit that both encompasses and contains and is contained within, is imminent within the finite universe, that this is something that, um, that evolutionary spirituality can reclaim. And indeed, when we look at what the science of evolution has shown us, what we now know about the evolution of the cosmos, the evolution of the bios, and when we add to that the integral understanding of uh, the evolution of consciousness and culture, we can get a, get a unified picture of evolution as a universe of becoming. And in this universe of becoming, nature and history have been creating value, and that this value has spiritual reality, like that the beautiful, the true, and the good that are entering the universe you know, through us, through our choices, through our creations, through our experiences, our spiritual experiences, 
that this is um, this is bringing a becoming reality of spirit that's moving into existence in time, and this may relate to what we're going to talk about in a minute. But evolutionary spirituality, as I argue, just like integral integral consciousness or the integral worldview is dialectically separated from the postmodern worldview. In other words, the problems and shortcomings of postmodernism um, provide our points of departure. You know, in other words, we, we're pushing off against the shortcomings of postmodernism. By and what would you say they are? The shortcomings of postmodernism? Yeah. Well, I would say one of them is uh, a degree of value relativism. Uh, another one would be uh, anti-modernism, the tendency to see... The, the previous stage, the before the postmodern, primarily for its pathologies, you know, only for its disasters and not for its dignities. So yeah. because so much of postmodernism is in antithesis to, you know, the developing world of, uh, you know, modernist civilization, this creates countercurrents. I mean, the, 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 these are, it's evolutionarily appropriate for postmodernism to be anti-modernist because that provides yeah. its points of departure. But it can only get so far in this position of antithesis before there needs to be another dialectical step toward a synthesis of the important achievements of postmodernism and the important achievements of modernism while attempting to prune away the pathologies that are you know, resident within both of these worldviews. So this dialectical move is important because this is how evolution works, you know, for the most part, is that there's this you know, transcending and including. And, and yeah. we, can, we can think about tr the idea of transcending and including from a dialectical stance because the antithesis transcends and the synthesis includes. Right? So you have to transcend yeah. and then you have to include in, in order to be a form of evolutionary growth. This is how evolution works all the way from the Big Bang to us, is it keeps building up what came before. It, you know, it, it doesn't just transcend, it includes. It takes up and uses the accomplishments of a previous stage. So yeah, now we're trying indeed. to go beyond the postmodern, both culturally, politically, and spiritually. And so that involves a, a pushing off against the shortcomings, not just the postmodern worldview and the postmodern value set, but the form of spirituality, um, you know, it doesn't have a well-agreed-upon name yet. I call it progressive spirituality. It's not entirely postmodern. It extends into the, and there are plenty of modernists who are engaged in various forms of progressive spirituality, just like there's modernists engaged in traditional forms of spirituality. But the center of gravity of progressive spirituality is post the postmodern worldview, and it's, you know, kind of, it rode the coattails of the emergence of that liberating form of culture. One of the ways that postmodernism broke away from modernism was it was able to reclaim spirituality, um, you know, from death at the hands of secularism. You know, in other words, it, the, the, um, you know, the, the modernism's job, as you said before in this, in your um, show, was to push off against the superstition and the myth and the magic and the oppression. And, and you know, those were the points of departure, at least some the of them, burning. for modernism, right? But in doing so, of course, they went too far, right? The sailboat, you know, has to tack back. It goes too far in one direction. So they got rid of the sacred so much, and they got rid of the superstition, they, they got rid of the sacred dimensions, the enchanted elements of the universe, which were really there. They became blind to those. So this yeah. provided an evolutionary opportunity for progressive spirituality to reclaim the sacred, but to do it in a way that avoided regression to a pre-modern traditional form by finding forms of spirituality that had a distinctly different feel and flavor than the Judeo-Christian heritage, which uh, you know the postmodernists had inherited from their history. And so, there, you know, it, 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 at first, in the 60s, I mean, you, know, you could trace progressive spirituality back to, you know, Emerson or maybe even Rousseau. But what really gets things going is not just the emergence of the postmodern worldview, but it's the um, introduction of, of psychedelic experience on a mass scale. That really opens the door to a new form of spirituality, because for most people who have a powerful psychedelic experience, the sacred nature of the universe is almost laughably obvious, right? So looking for answers once you've had that taste involves discovering alternative forms of spirituality. And one of the advantages of the relativism, the shortcoming, you know, every strength is also uh, a shortcoming to a degree. They're tied together. So postmodern relativism, it's, it's uh, you know, um, unwillingness to make value judgments or say, you know, that one thing's better than another. At least, it, you know, it, it's, it's willing to do that in some circumstances, but there's plenty of ways in which it's relativistic. 
that's a strength when it comes to finding alternative forms of spirituality because you can let a thousand flowers bloom. You can let everything back in. You know, every every form of spirituality, except maybe, you know, mainstream Protestantism or evangelicalism, is given a fresh look and brought back. And so there begins to be this eclectic, syncretic, um, welcoming, anything goes, you know, new age, uh, spiritual, cultural milieu. And mm-hmm. um, it emerges, you know, in the 60s, you know, as a result of the, the um, you know, the youth movement and the psychedelic movement. It, in the 70s, you know, the history of it, we could spend a lot of time talking about that, but in the 70s it starts to consolidate. You know, as the, the momentum of the hippie movement kind of dies out in the mid-70s, New Age spirituality kind of takes up the torch, you know, and, and, and continues. And even though it gained a lot of ground in the 70s, it was still very immature, uh, in the 80s, it was kind of underground, but there's a lot of consolidation going on, you know, uh, especially with, with um, you know, Buddhism, Tibetan Buddhism, and the leadership of, uh, you know, um, Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche in um, bringing Tibetan Buddhism. A lot of that occurred in the 80s. Then in the 90s, it goes through a, a kind of a fluorescence. Um, progressive spirituality becomes a big cultural phenomenon. Um, you know, evidence for this, uh, you can see in a lot of places. One of them is in the book industry. You know, new age titles in the 90s are the largest category of book sales by far. They dwarf everything else. And new age bookstores, you know, spring up in every town. You know, uh, uh, there were once thousands and thousands of, of new age bookstores in the United States. And they weren't just bookstores. They were also sort of cultural centers, you know, where you'd go and hear a lecture or yeah. you'd do a yoga class. And, you know, many people remember the 90s as this period of fluorescence, which, of course, continued past the millennium. The approach to the millennium kind of gave it an enchanted feel. That was a, a part of it. But it continued, and, and uh, uh, in the 2000s, um, it kind of, it seemed, you know, there, again, there's, there's no hard evidence we can point to, but it, it seemed to kind of level off a little bit, and maybe even shrunk. You know, part of this had to do with the, um, you know, the Great Recession. Part of it had to do with the, um, the commercial uh, shortcomings of progressive spirituality. You know, again, this is a sort of a unwieldy topic that is hard well, to cover I would say in that some part of way. It, part, part of what happened too, and I think of myself, is I got it. You know, uh-huh. I mean, I, I got the fruits of that. I turned over many rocks. I got something from everything. I, it's all in the table for me. And I'm ready for the next thing, which is to put it together in some kind of meaningful pattern, first of all, and also find the piece that's missing, which is, a relationship with a divine other, actually. Yeah. And that is part of the, I think, move to what the next stage is, which is what you call evolutionary spirituality, right? Well, right. I mean, just this, this task of moving away, breaking the grip, uh, the oppressive grip of pre-modern traditional spirituality, especially Christianity, that, was a, that, that took two stages to do, right? The first stage was to... Uh, you know, cut it off completely with modernism. And the next stage was to rediscover spirituality in ways that tried to, you know, either exclude or tone down, you know, the, the major themes of Christianity. You know, there's some things that made it into progressive spirituality, but by and large, progressive spirituality is, especially as it matured and it has come, you know, to, as we can see it now in its 2015 form, it's come to really favor the non-dual conception of ultimate reality. This has been an important accomplishment of progressive spirituality, especially the more intellectual strains of it, is that they come to um, inhabit this non-dual form of spirituality by not only bringing it forward in, in Buddhism and in Advaita Vedantaism, but also in kind of looking at the historical record. You know, we have for the first time the wisdom of the ages that have been assembled, and uh, non-dualists have found non-dual expressions in uh, practically every other religion, right? So, the, you know, Meister Eckhart is the, the poster boy for non-dual Christianity, and then there are, you know, the um, the Kabbalists, many of whom had a non-dual view, and there's even non-dual versions of Islam, right, that can be seen in Sufism and some of the poetry of Rumi. So these have been searched out and assembled, and uh, and, and it's, it's brought a coherent picture of, of this kind of non-dual form of spirituality, even though it has variations, it's not uniform, it's, it's a real powerful uh, form of human spirituality, and it's based on spiritual experience, the experience of oneness, the unitive experience that can be had either, you know, through mystical encounters or through practices such as meditation. So this is a very important accomplishment, 
And I think this accomplishment belongs primarily to progressive spirituality, and it was an important step. And so now that step's been taken, um, this allows us to go from antithesis to synthesis. It's just sort of that primary program of the emergence of this integral or evolutionary worldview. So evolutionary spirituality, in keeping with this pushing off against progressive spirituality theme, says, how can we do that? Where is there to go now? I mean, non-duality has been very well developed within progressive spirituality, especially among its intellectual thought leaders. Um, one way is to begin to reclaim, the, as you mentioned, the, the theistic side. The, the, and when I say theistic, I, I, you know, the correct terms might be pantheistic, which is sort of a technical term for a version of non-duality, and panentheistic, but those sound so similar and they're kind of technical, it's probably easier to talk about these two major forms of spirituality as non-dual and theistic. And, um, you know, there are uh, a variety of famous theologians, such as Hans Kuhn, who have uh, identified this. Um, you know, uh, most of this work was done in the 70s and 80s, but uh, those who were familiar practitioners of both Buddhism and Christianity could see that there was a very interesting tension, that they couldn't just be reconciled, that they weren't just different paths to the top of the same mountain that there was some inherent tension energy between the concept, not just the spiritual teachings, but the spiritual experiences that went with the practices, right? It's not just a matter of doctrinal distinctions. As I mentioned, uh, you know, the, the non-duality is based on a very deep and real and replicable and ancient spiritual experience. But the theistic side also has its own sort of spiritual experience, which is not the same thing. And that is this experience, as I argue, of the love of God. You know, the, the, the love of a universe that cares, a love that, of, of, of a higher transcendent form of reality that exists within you. It's imminent and transcendent. But for love to be real, uh, you know, a non-dual vision complicates it. You know, in other words, the teachings of non-duality are, you have to kind of stretch them or fuzz them up in order to allow for a dualistic relationship like love of creator and creature. So again, this is immensely complicated, and it's something that can just be, um, you know, summarized easily. But the idea that evolutionary spirituality is is growing beyond progressive spirituality by finding a place to reclaim the deep truths of the spiritual heritage of Western civilization, you know, the truths about a loving God, but doing that in a way that that transcends, is able to tease apart the dignities from the disasters. You know, the the anthropocentric, vengeful deity that we all rather we we know is a fairy tale. But the idea that the universe that there's that, that it's all just one thing, and that that there's no um, creative force, there's no uh, third party, if you will, there's no um, there's no source of reality that has its own self awareness. And, uh, you know, again, um, this is something that, that takes a while to unpack. You know, it, it can be criticized from many different uh, angles. It can be criticized from scientism. It can be criticized from, you know, strict forms of non-theistic, non-duality. It could be criticized from the traditional level as not being, you know, biblically based. But nevertheless, uh, I know in my own experience, and I know in truth teachings that have resonated with me very deeply, that... Um, the universe is clearly a it's a clear evidence for creative causation, and you know we have creative causation. We have free will. We have purpose. We are agents, and this agency that we possess, I think, uh, also exists in the totality. You know, the totality is real, and it has the features in a way that's far beyond anything we can conceive. But nevertheless, these features of agency and love and purpose are things which are indeed possessed by the source of the universe, and um, those have been realized uh, throughout history by the insights of the great saints and sages who brought forward a theistic vision of uh, ultimate reality. Okay, so let me stop you there and just say I'm, I'm working on this, okay? And so I go to this conference, and I'll just give you a little example of something that happened and see if you can maybe help me. Okay. All right, so I'm part of this little uh, panel that's only up there for like 15 minutes, just five people give their opinion on things just to get the conversation going in the room. And so David Reardon, who's the Master of Ceremonies, is ask, asks me a question, what do I think spirit is up to? And 
I know he was expecting a pretty predictable answer from me. I mean, that's a softball question for a guy like me that, you know, mm-hmm. spirit is up to. We're riding a ever accelerating evolutionary flow into a sacred world that's more good, true, and beautiful. You know, I believe all of that. And I could feel God at the center of that, that that's pulling me and that is loving me and seeing me and that I can love back. And I, you know, actually sort of the basis of my relationship is to just ask and to pray and to see what happens. I'm, I'm more experimenting my way into this than analyzing. But there's a big problem for me. And it came up in my answer. And I was a little bit surprised myself. And I think other people were as well. And I just, my answer was that I think that clearly God has a greater tolerance for suffering than I do. We had just heard a speaker who talked about her mother who had, whose family perished in the Holocaust and how she was allergic to God. And that sometimes just stuck in my craw. And I thought of that, I mean, maybe it's a apocryphal story, but it's about a sentence that was carved into the barracks wall at Auschwitz. And it said, if God exists, he's going to have to beg my forgiveness. And when I look at, you know, the good things that are happening and, you know, I can see God in there, but I also have to realize that's the same God who has allowed just, I don't know, untold suffering of children and mothers and tapeworm and disease and war and beheadings and starvation and drought and jeez um i don't know is my moral sense more developed than god's <laughs> well so so the question you're posing has a formal philosophical name it's called the problem of evil and the idea is, you know, debated by both, you know, those who are atheistic and those who argue for um, uh, a theistic vision of ultimate reality. Um, you know, the basic question is, you know, if God exists, how could God allow uh, all this evil and suffering in the world, right? Why, why, why wouldn't God have created a universe where, you know, maybe there'd be a little bit of suffering or maybe just some discomfort, right? But the horrific, you know the horrors of the Auschwitz. Yeah, a little discomfort would be all we need. You know, the, the thermostat, you know, will still move towards comfort. Right. You know, evolution will still be served. Yes. Does it have to be red of tooth and claw? Yeah. So, so let me, I, I hate to keep saying this, but it's important for intellectual integrity to say that this is an immensely complicated question, which, you know, we should... Well, you have three minutes. Yeah, right, three minutes. Okay. Um, so, you know, superficially, I can say that there's two defenses against the, 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 the challenge of the problem of evil. One is, or one is a set of defenses is philosophical, and the other is more sort of faith-based or, or, or spiritual, uh, as a form of spiritual teaching. And so if we go back and say, look, the universe has been created. In other words, there was a Big Bang. The finite has become, uh, it's come to exist within uh, the infinite. The finite became a part of the infinite 13.8 billion years ago. And so evolutionary spirituality asks, is there a purpose behind this, or is this just a random, purposeless event? Obviously, scientism would have us believe that it indeed is random, and we can explain it randomly, or at least through purely physical causes. But uh, I know I and many others who are part of the evolutionary spirituality movement reject that and see that the creation of the universe indeed has a purpose. And so, but the characteristics of the creation give us hints into what this purpose is. In other words, one way of conceiving the creation of the finite universe, and this was something that was realized by the, the, the Kabbalists, the medieval Kabbalists um, in Safed, they, they saw that, that in a sense the, the finite was created by the infinite being removed. You know, in other words, perfection was removed from a part of the universe so that there could be, not just being, there could be becoming. Becoming has a cosmic function. It, it adds to pure being. And the question is, what could it add? Well, I think it adds uh, an experiential form of perfection. In other words, the, 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 the creatures within the finite, like us, um, evolve our consciousness, and as we do, we come to know perfection gradually through our own efforts and practices and choices, right? We, we experience perfection in a way as we create it, 
you know, the, the beautiful, the true, and the good are the forms of perfection that we're empowered as agents of evolution to create. And so we're here doing our best to create those things. But the creation of those things wouldn't really be ours if we didn't have any responsibility for them, if there wasn't a universe in which perfection had been removed and you know, our job in the cosmic economy is to add it back, then this process of adding it back has to allow for its absence. In other words, the actuals have to be removed to create the space of potentials in which free will creatures like us can participate in the becoming. Now, you know, that's philosophical, but let me, let me get to the, the, the punchline there, and that is, Free, that, that evil is a shadow of free will. Before humans had the capacity to choose morally, there was no such thing as evil. Right? We don't assign evil to animals. Right? Maybe they can suffer, right? but before they had consciousness, they couldn't suffer. Rocks don't suffer. Right? So consciousness, the shadow of consciousness uh, or sentience is suffering. The shadow of a higher level of consciousness that has morality is evil. And this shadow is in some ways the proof of the, the fact that this universe of becoming is not yet actualized and we have a role to play. Now, there's also the sense in which if we're here for a reason, then, then we're going to be, a, we have to accomplish something. In other words, our accomplishments as a culture, as a civilization, right, is to overcome this evil. The fact that it bothers us so much and seems so senseless and horrible, indeed because it is, but also because we are empowered to be able to overcome it. And once we have, we will have created something by our own means, by our own lights, that will add to the perfect being that that existed before there was a universe of becoming. So in other words, freedom has a very important role in the cosmic economy, not just the freedom of our wills, but the freedom of... um, you know, a, a universe of, of uh, an imperfect universe. And, and the imperfections that we see uh, are urgent and jarring, and, and, you know, they're the opposite of the beautiful, the true, and the good. And these things allow us to, um, uh, they awaken us to the urgent duty that we have to try to perfect the universe, to try to get rid of these things. Now, that's at least a taste of some of the philosophical side of the argument. Let me just leave that there for a moment and then turn to the spiritual side. I think that, um, you know, the people who have suffered the worst in this world, you know, or the greatest injustices or the biggest tragedies, I think that probably there's a hangover from bad theology of the past where people conceived of, of God as being deterministic, of God being like the puppet master. You know, the, the, the idea of, of free agents was something that was... I mean, not universally accepted within traditional forms of spirituality. So, partially, we're dealing with this kind of Old Testament idea that God's controlling things. And if he is controlling things, and Auschwitz happens, then, indeed, that is a big argument against any kind of loving, you know, creator. But I I think that when we hold these free will arguments, the philosophical understanding of the reason of the becoming and the, the, the shadow of freedom... We can then point to say, if there's, you know, the only way that evil and suffering can be redeemed or could be somehow made okay in this longer scheme of things is if there is an afterlife. You know, if, if, if there is an afterlife, and I certainly believe there is, then it could be that the things which we suffer, you know, the evil that we experience is a necessary part of our journey, and indeed, those who've borne a disproportionate share of that suffering, you know, those who've, who've, who've had the worst suffering to take, but that suffering in the afterlife becomes a kind of inventory of their comparative joy. In other words, the people who suffered more are able to experience joy in a way that those of us who haven't suffered to that degree can't, right? So we may be jealous of the people who had to suffer through Auschwitz in the afterlife because they're, they're going to be much more joyful by comparison. Uh, I'm doubly screwed then because <laughs> I've had a very cushy life. Well, but, you know, you've certainly been afflicted. I mean, one could say the greatest affliction <laughs> from this perspective is to have never been afflicted. No, no, no. Of course. It ain't, it ain't easy, no matter what. Well, I don't think that... I think there is freedom in the universe of becoming. I think that a loving God can be reconciled with the horrific suffering on this, in this world if we, if we recognize that the suffering of innocence is redeemed in the afterlife and that um, these experiences will be more than made up for. Yeah. Well, one of the things that we learn even in the non-dual traditions is the um, sort of unreality of experience, too. I mean, there's a, there's a, every experience is shot through with emptiness. 
so that there is, a, you know, it's, it's, it's almost like the same thing of when we die, we it's like waking up from a dream and going, God, that was a nightmare. You know, I was just chased by a lion and, you know, cornered and just about to have my head ripped off and I wake up or I had my head ripped off and I wake up and it was like, oh, okay, that's over. And that there is, and we know this from uh, reports of near-death experiences and, and and mystical experiences, and not to mention, you know, monks who uh, joyfully self-immolate. That there's a way of just receiving the suffering of life that is itself joyful. And I think that's a, a, a big job, and I think it's a, a practice, and I am not... Um, all that good at it, but uh, I'm working on it. Well, that's where, um, you know, the, the non-dual side and the theistic side can true each other up a bit. They can challenge each other. You know, there's wise non-attachment and there's loving engagement. There's the idea yeah. that um, the universe is a, is a beautiful illusion. And there's the idea that nature and history are the process of spirit, you know, coming into reality. And therefore, they're very valuable and very spiritually real. Um, these things you know, uh, we don't have to sort of say it's both and. We can go back and forth and, and say, well, no, from this perspective, that's wrong. And from this perspective, that's wrong. And yet we know from a higher being able to hold a polarity like that within our consciousness through, you know, vision logic or dialectical understanding, we can begin to use the polarity itself as a system for greater understanding. I guess, you know, just to summarize what I was saying about the spiritual dimension, if we, if we could summarize the philosophical arguments as evil is the shadow of free will, we could summarize the spiritual arguments through the faith conviction that all things work together for good, despite yeah. all appearances to the contrary. Yeah. Wow. Well put. And so faith, what, do you have any tips on that? <laughs> sure. How do we? Yeah, um, I mean, <clears throat> how do we hold that? Right. I mean, faith is a spiritual practice, which, because it's most associated with the traditional level of spirituality, is often confused with belief. Right. Yeah, the, 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 the words used in many ways. So your faith could be your belief system, right? But faith can also be understood as a form of spiritual practice. That's a kind of a super conscious knowing beyond what's cognitively possible for you to know. And that um, a lot of this faith is uh, a kind of a meeting of God halfway. You know, the, uh, uh, the French philosopher Blaise Pascal is famous for his quote that I love, which is, human things must be known in order to be loved, but divine things must be loved in order to be known. And this loving of God is, is, is the spiritual practice of faith, and it opens the channel through which you can feel God's love for you as a son and daughter of the living God. You know, that is, the, the, the idea that, that we are actually known and loved and cared for by God from both within and without, but that's, you know, the central teaching of Jesus of Nazareth. I mean, I don't know how much that was emphasized at this recent conference, but the love of God is really the keynote of his teaching. And, yeah. um, you know, there's, there's uh, the, the, the practice of faith that Jesus commends uh, is one in which... Um, you trust. You know, you know. It's not like that you're just, you're incredulous or you're duped. I mean, maybe that may be the case with, you know, the masses of mythic believers at the traditional level, but like all spiritual practices, faith has an expression at the evolutionary level, and the evolutionary level faith practice uh, is not just a matter of belief in myths and miracles. It's a matter of um, practicing the presence of God and doing it through faith. Yeah. And that is, um, you know, an, an ever more delicious practice for me, and I think for a lot of integral spiritual practitioners, uh, certainly the uh, several hundred who participated in the uh, Return to the Heart of Christ Consciousness conference this last weekend. So the um, practice and the exploration continues, and, uh, you know, I just feel so lit up by it. And I want to thank you, Steve, for once again uh, really helping me understand this. And uh, you know, understanding really helps a lot. Uh, it really helps to guide the practice and the experience itself. So, well, the teachings thank you again and the practices so much. and the experiences are all woven together. You know, they they yeah. they light each other up, and that's one of the things that evolutionary spirituality does is it gives us a new perspective 
on spiritual teachings from every tradition in ways that can be pluralistic, but not get caught in relativism. And, yeah. um, and so that's what, you know, the, the next book's about. Well, all right. I think uh, we've exceeded the end of our time, but that's okay because it's the internet and we can do whatever we want. <laughs> Plus we have to make up for the uh, technical time at the beginning. Yeah, exactly. So uh, thank you again, Steve, for joining us, Steve McIntosh, and thank uh, all of you for joining us. And so again, love to hear from you, uh, Jeff at dailyevolver.com or the voicemail button on the homepage of uh, dailyevolver.com website. You can also find Daily Evolver, of course, at our home site, which is Integral Life itself, IntegralLife.com. Also on uh, Stitcher and iTunes. And, um, you know, share it with people you think might be interested. I'm, again, so gratified that, you know, the, the thousands of downloads we're getting uh, that I really never thought would happen. But I'm so grateful that it is and that, um, you know, so many of you are on this exploration and on this journey with me and others. All right. Thanks again, everybody. This is Jeff Salzman signing off. See you next Tuesday on Daily Evolver Live.